You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Special thanks to our amazing stage door patrons. Defunctland, Riley McMacken, Brent Black, Noxie Zibat, Nate Gardner, Ethan, Julian Dean, LAZTM Productions, Tommy Kindle, Abigail Verzella, and John Fogg. The most beneficial and the most dangerous trait of the 1980s was the belief that there was no such thing as too much. It was a time of nearly cartoonish excess, where America was dominated by the three isms. Materialism, narcissism, and consumerism, yeah, yeah! While the older members of the 80s were obsessed with money and getting seats at the best restaurants, the younger members were all stuck in an identity crisis that came from lacking that one unifying experience that would distinguish their unique generation. But everything changed in 1981 with the launch of MTV and the introduction to the phenomenon that would become a driving force of the times, the music video. Soon, instead of lyrics and melodies, the focus switched to the fashion and theatrics of the performance. The attitude and style of the music video began to transcend onto Broadway, with a new style of theater rising to prominence. By 1982, this new musical form was established in America with the premiere of Cats, and the pure majesty of the mega-musical was revealed to all. Two years later, and following the trend of adding human attributes to non-human things, Lloyd Webber and his gang would do it again, only this time it would be by having actors play trains on roller skates, traveling at speeds of up to 40 miles per hour. What would result would be one of the most dangerous shows ever staged in theater history. This is the story of what went wrong with Starlight Express on Broadway. There are five components necessary for defining a mega musical. 
Number one, the plots are big in scope and typically center around epic themes of love, war, or redemption. Two, in the same tradition as classical opera, they have little to no spoken dialogue. Instead, everything is sung through. Number three, the sets, staging, and music are grandiose, but still able to remain grounded in elements of the plot and the story. Number four, the marketing strategies help the musical transcend into a cultural event. And number five, critics generally despise them. This is the formula that made shows like Cats, Les Mis, and Phantom of the Opera so incredibly popular. The shows became flashier, faster, and were drawing in more money than had ever been seen on Broadway before. In a sense, they had been able to bring Broadway back to its roots of impresarios like Ziegfeld's Follies, who were known for the appealing showgirls and glamorous spectacle. And staying true to point number five, the critics hated them for it. Andrew Lloyd Webber knew this, and it put him in a tricky spot when trying to determine what steps to take in regards to the future of his new musical, Starlight Express. If the critics on Broadway had been that upset over human cats in leg warmers, he could only imagine what they would say about human trains in roller skates. Starlight was the end result of three abandoned or failed projects Lloyd Webber had been involved with going all the way back to 1973. It started with a conversation between him and Reverend Wilbur Audrey, the author of his favorite collection of books named the Railway Series, which focused on a tank engine named Thomas. Yes, that one. The first failed project was in 1976 and was an attempted television series pilot called Engine of Many Colors that was pulled because the station didn't think it would appeal to US audiences. The second was a failed 1970s disco track called Engine of Love that Lloyd Webber had written for soul singer Earl Jordan. Jordan could sing three notes at once, which meant that his voice could fuel Lloyd Webber's train obsession. And the third failed project was a cancelled animated Cinderella television project, which had an ugly steam engine race for a chance to pull the royal train across the United States. After all the failure, the railway idea was shelved for six years. But after the success of Cats in London, Lloyd Webber recruited the show's lyricist Richard Stilgo to help him see if the train idea had any wheels to roll on. He decided that he wanted to go the same route as Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat by presenting it to numerous schools in the form of a concert series. After a couple of the songs were performed at Lloyd Webber's annual Sidmonton Festival, the course of the show began to take a completely different track. Cats director Trevor Nunn was in attendance, and after seeing the two songs performed, he could sense that Starlight was the perfect concept to infuse with spectacle and theater magic but Lloyd Webber was still conflicted. In his mind, he just meant for the songs to be schoolboy fun, that he had written for his children, and that he could possibly, down the road, turn into an animated film. But now, his small, intimate vision was being derailed. Still, Nunn, choreographer Arlene Phillips, and designer John Napier persisted. Seeing as nothing was coming to fruition on the animation front, Lloyd Webber decided to entertain the idea. The first challenge they had to overcome was figuring out how in the world they make human actors appear as trains. 
In a desire of wanting to stay hip with the kids, they played around with the idea of having the actors race around on skateboards, but they ultimately nixed the idea since seeing people's feet hit the ground would ruin the illusion of one cohesive machine. Much in the same way that he had come up with the designs for leg warmers and wild punk wigs for cats, John Napier was walking through Central Park when he was nearly knocked over by a group of people whizzing past him at a high speed. Thanks to the disco scene, the early 1980s were dominated by roller skaters. This sparked an idea. Trains have wheels, so do roller skates. Put the actors on roller skates! This revelation found Nunn, Stilgo, and Lloyd Webber moving the story away from a Cinderella tale to one that would instead take place in the mind of a child that they would refer to as Control. It would then tell the story of a steam engine named Rusty competing in a series of high-stakes championship races with the hopes of becoming the champion engine of the world! And thus, impressing his dream girl, train, car, thing, Pearl. Feeling hopeless, it's through the help of a mystical godlike deity named the Starlight Express that Rusty discovers his true worth. Through a rigorous rehearsal period, the London production of Starlight Express opened at the Apollo Victoria Theatre on March 27, 1984, with the royal family in attendance. The London cast would consist of Rachel as Rusty, the underdog steam engine, Jeff Shankly would be the macho diesel train greaseball, Jeffrey Daniel as the futuristic electric train car Electra, Stephanie Lawrence as Pearl, the first class passenger train that Rusty wants to Lon Satin as Papa, Michael Staniforth as the Red Caboose, basically a serial killer train car, and France Ruffel as Dinah, a dining car who gets dumped by Greaseball, and who after getting exiled to the wrong side of the tracks, is the character most likely to sing Memory if there's ever a sequel. Opening was chaotic, to say the least. The last 15 minutes of the show were ruined by a BBC broadcast truck that began transmitting at the same frequency as the microphones used in the show, resulting in the last powerhouse numbers being ruined. The show generated mixed reviews, but the commercial response was still high, and inevitably, discussion started for a New York transfer. It would be a risky move, only highlighted by the fact that unlike Cats, Lloyd Webber's main producer, Cameron McIntosh, wouldn't be attached to help make it a cultural phenomenon through marketing. Lloyd Webber was adamant that Starlight shouldn't go anywhere near Broadway because he knew there would be a critical backlash from people who just didn't understand it. Holding true to this belief, he planned on partnering with producer Robert Stigwood. Stigwood would recruit the help of rock promoter Steve Lieber, who had been able to appeal to a younger crowd with his 1977 production of Beatlemania, as well as the Jesus Christ Superstar concert tours. Feeling confident that this was the avenue they were taking, Lloyd Webber took his eyes off of the future of Starlight, and instead totally engulfed himself in creating a new musical based on the novel The Phantom of the Opera. But his business associate, Brian Brawley, had other locomotives. Unbeknownst to Lloyd Webber, 
Raleigh had been offered a guaranteed $22 million by Jimmy Niederlander to stage Starlight in one of his Broadway houses, out of the belief that the pop-infused musical would play extremely well to American audiences. And so, it was official. Starlight Express would make the transatlantic trip to Broadway. Standing in the audition room in New York, the creative team could tell that the same problems they ran into in London were happening again. How do they find actors who can pull off this show? If the team thought that casting Cats was difficult, then casting Starlight would be nearly impossible because they needed to not only find actors who could sing and dance, but also roller skate. The auditions up to this point had been a sea of pandemonium, with countless actors falling down, running into tables, and flailing all around the room. It was a grueling process trying to narrow it down. But by the fifth round of callbacks, casting directors Vinnie Lift and Tara Rubin, as well as choreographer Arlene Phillips, felt confident in the final eight members that they had selected to introduce to Lloyd Webber, Nunn, and the investors. The group they had assembled was a diverse mix of unknown actors who had little idea how to skate and hardcore skaters who had little idea how to act. Out of the eight people in the room, by far the most confident skater was a girl named Reva Rice. For her, roller skating had always been her therapy. So when director Trevor Nunn asked to see the cast roll around the room to some music, it was just like she was back at Boston Conservatory, skating her troubles away at four in the morning. While Reba was confident in her skating, a young actor named Robert Torty was not. His mode of transportation came in the form of skateboarding in Southern California, where he at least had the freedom to bail off if he felt like he was gonna wreck. Needless to say, he wasn't as confident in his roller skating ability, but he was confident in his ability to hide behind people who could. This wasn't his first time auditioning for an Andrew Lloyd Webber show. After countless callbacks for the role of the Rum Tum Tugger in Cats, Torty was hopeful that this would finally be his lucky break. And soon, after seeing over 1,000 people, Starlight Express finally had its cast. Starlight Express! 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 Greg Mowry would take over the role of Rusty, Steve Flower would be Papa, Ken Ard would be Electra, Barry K. Bernal would find himself as the Red Caboose, aka Patrick Freightman, Broadway's original Annie, Andrea McArdle, would become Ashley, Jamie Beth Chandler would be Buffy, and making their Broadway debuts, Reva Rice would play Pearl, Robert Torty would become Greaseball, and a then-unknown Jane Krakowski would be Dinah. The creative team would also add a new position that they realized they desperately needed after London. In that production, a cast member named Mark Davis was given the role of a skate coach. But since roller skating was so much more popular in America, they knew that a higher level of expertise would be expected. This meant that they would need a skate coach who wasn't a performer. And they found it in Michael Fraley. With the cast and crew in place, the process would move to its next phase. Skating Boot Camp. The original Rusty on the West End, Ray Shell, said that one had to be bionic to do Starlight Express. And he's got a point. Starlight is not just a run-of-the-mill standard musical. It's a blood sport. 
the hours of rehearsal were rigorous. The typical day consisted of working with the musical director, scene study with none, and extensive skate training. They were drilled in endless exercises, where Fraley would yell out commands for them to skate forwards, backwards, to do crossovers, spins, and turns in a high-intensity roller skating crash course. And crash they did. People fell, twisted their ankles, and burned their eyes from the sweat dripping into them. But this training was crucial to making it look like the crew had been skating their entire lives, and that they were professionals. At the end of each rehearsal, actors would pull off their skates to reveal blood-stained socks from blisters. But the cast never gave up. They would come back the next day smiling, bandage their feet, and continue to rehearse until the only thing that could make them stop was their legs giving out on them. Luckily for Bob Torty, one of the least experienced skaters in the cast, this intense training was right up his alley. Bob was a serious jock in high school, who auditioned for a musical his freshman year as a joke, but accidentally ended up falling in love with theater. When Fraley signed on to be the skate coach, Arlene Phillips singled Torty out and told Fraley that he had to be the best skater in the cast. While he was certainly learning quickly, he was still at a disadvantage from not getting much private focus training. He was learning how to do more of the advanced moves, but was still somehow managing to fall over just standing still. The competitive mindset began to kick in, and with the help of Fraley, Torty's skating became faster and faster. The same went for the rest of the cast, whose skills were becoming sharper and cleaner. The testament to how much their skating had improved was cemented when Equity came in to observe a rehearsal to see if the actors were entitled to hazard pay. Though they eventually were awarded it, upon first seeing all of them skate, Equity made the decision not to give it to them, because it was obvious that they were all professional skaters. By the end of their rehearsals at 890 Studios, the cast was confident enough in their skills that they were ready to make the move to the Gershwin Theater on Broadway. It was then that they met their next monstrous challenge. The set. A design style art express for London and New York. Yeah, it's, it's good because it's, it's how we intended to do it originally, was to do it in a sports stadium. So there was the element of a sporting event. The third component necessary for determining whether or not a musical is a mega-musical is a grandiose set that becomes a character in its own right. One of the most charming aspects of Evil Dead was the set made from the wood of an old barn. Then there's Beetlejuice, which somewhat embraced the spectacle of Broadway by creating a set that could move back and forth, while also transforming in relation to the families occupying the house. Both unique both impressive, both too small to be considered a mega-musical type set. After transforming the Winter Garden into an all-encompassing junkyard for cats, designer John Napier upped the ante by transforming the Gershwin into an extreme $5 million train set. The Broadway set engulfed the London version, coming equipped with 1,000 feet of fluorescent tubing, 7,000 sheets of plywood, 120,000 pounds of steel, and 22 miles of fiber optic cables with numerous hydraulic systems. The set was so big that the team had to punch out 
four 20-foot walls, chop down six steel beams, and take out ten rows of seats just to make it fit. The cast walked in and were completely terrified of the beast they were met with. No longer were they skating on the flat floors of the studio, but instead were faced with a three-level set. The three-foot-high ramps were replaced by six-foot halfpipes, and the set was littered with numerous hills, bowls that could rise and fall on demand, tunnels that curved down and around, a 20-foot starting line section that would pop out of the ground, and an industrial iron swing bridge that would tilt, rise, fall, and swivel on a dime. It was an adrenaline junkie's fantasy and a novice skater's worst nightmare. Bob Cordy looked up at the threatening behemoth, knowing that for his entrance, he would have to skate all the way down from the third level to the first. Reva Rice walked up and looked down the six-foot bowl. Even though she had been skating since she was five, it was a long way down. As writer and lifelong Starlight fanatic Josie Campbell said, I'm fairly certain that Andrew Lloyd Webber was trying to kill people. Just like their counterparts in London, training started all over again. With the new set came a new surface that was incredibly uneven, and as a result, the injuries began to occur. The abuse on the actors' bodies left them black, blue, and swollen. Ken Rose, who was playing Hashimoto, snapped his ankle when trying to catch Andrea Margardle while practicing a lift, and a majority of the cast were overheating in their costumes. Not only were they having to wear a full clunky train costume and nine-pound skates, they also had to wear a full bodysuit underneath it due to equity sanitation rules. The costumes, mixed with the exercise, made Bob Torty lose 19 pounds during the show. Despite the injuries and after soaking their feet in countless alcohol tubs to help toughen up their blisters, the cast began skating the set like madmen. They were moving at such breakneck speeds that Lloyd Webber had to continuously run out of the theater and bang away at the piano in the lobby to speed up the songs so they could keep up with the actors. Starlight Express was originally scheduled to open at the end of February 1987 a week before another show that most of the production team was working on at the same time. A little musical that would unfortunately fade into obscurity and never be heard of again. Les Mis. But as opening night drew closer, Trevor Nunn still wasn't confident that the show was where it needed to be, and they kept running into technical problems involving the set. It seemed that in creating a track designed for spectacle, there were times that the physics of skating were completely forgotten. Certain sections of the set had been so steep that they would have sent people plummeting 15 feet to the ground. Due to a series of modifications, the opening date would be postponed twice, until finally opening on March 15, 1987, at the Gershwin Theater in New York. The new changes meant that now, Starlight was practically unrecognizable when compared to the London version. Everything was bigger, from the sets, to the costumes, to the music. In order to appeal to a more Americanized audience, the engines would now be racing for the coveted silver dollar. Since there was more room on the stage of the Gershwin, and in part because the Nederlanders didn't want their auditorium torn to shreds like the Apollo in London had been, Nunn and Napier decided to cut the element of having the skaters race around the audience, and instead keep them in the confines of the stage. The set also now embraced the feeling of a child's fantasy train set, equipped with many famous American landmarks. 
On the music front, numerous songs were added, replaced, or cut. One of which was a number called The Rap, which had trains rapping about racing each other. Eat your heart out, Hamilton! In what was probably the most poetic edition, the song He Whistled at Me was replaced with the 1977 failed disco track Engine of Love, bringing the project full circle. When factoring in the cost of the set, costumes, and a high amount of insurance, Starlight Express had evolved from the idea of a little train musical to be performed in schools, to instead being the most expensive show ever staged on Broadway at the time. Once adjusted for inflation, Starlight cost a staggering $18 million, eclipsing Les Mis's modest budget of $10 million. During the opening night production, there were around five different falls over the course of the two-hour show. Accidents were always going to happen. Both Nunn and Phillips knew this. So, to help cover up those mistakes, they made the smart decision of incorporating choreographed accidents. This way, anytime a mistake would happen, it wouldn't stick out, and people would just think it was a part of the show. While it was certainly physically appealing, Lloyd Webber couldn't help but feel that something was missing. And it was made even more apparent in the show program that audience members read that night. The one-page note served more as a disclaimer, where he let audiences know that he had never intended for it to be more than just a concert series like Joseph had been. He shifted the blame for the use of pop songs and roller skates onto none, saying, Frankly, some of us had doubts. I hope Trevor and my other collaborators will forgive me for saying that despite the commercial success the show has had in London, something of the joy and sense of pure fun that was the original intention seems to get lost, and Starlight Express was not quite what we intended. It was an interesting move, especially considering that money-wise, he had nothing to lose. The money for the production had come in large part from MCA and a New Zealand investment company, meaning that financially, Lloyd Webber hadn't put a penny into Starlight. Emotionally and artistically, however, he knew that he was about to be demolished. While there was high appreciation for the technical aspects and the impressive tenacity of the cast, critics were still left with the feeling that the show operated on pure spectacle alone. Lloyd Webber's arch-rival Frank Rich of the New York Times proved to be particularly nasty by dismissing the show as a confusing jamboree of piercing noise, routine roller skating, misogyny, and Orwellian special effects. Starlight Express is the perfect gift for the kid who has everything except parents. The negative reviews for Lloyd Webber's brand of mega musical were to be expected though, and despite the reception in the reviews, Starlight was still able to open to positive commercial success, outgrossing Les Mis by $100,000, and it would continue to run in steady competition for the months following, playing to near-capacity houses, thanks in part to the loyal public of Lloyd Webber fans, and the general curiosity revolving around the production. The longer the show ran, however, the more apparent it became of just how dangerous it was. One of the most thrilling aspects of Starlight Express came from seeing actors race around the stage at breakneck speeds. But the selling point came with a big price. In a 1998 study by the newspaper The Independent, Starlight was deemed the most dangerous show on the West End, with the 21 performers averaging three injuries apiece. 
Actors would miss turns and fly into the crowd. They would look down while skating to see one of their wheels racing off in front of them. And the starting gate would periodically come up too soon, leaving the actors to make a split-second decision whether to dodge or jump on top of it to avoid falling 20 feet into the basement. The costumes weren't any help either, since the helmets actors had to wear during the races limited their field of view to where they could only see what was directly in front of them. Stage managers had to dress as railway attendants to let the actors know if the bridge had moved into place for them to skate across, or if they were about to make a 30-foot drop. During one performance, Bob Tordy was making his way down from level 2 to level 1 with Jane Krakowski attached to him at the hip. As he was making his way to the bridge, he realized a minor problem. There was no bridge. Thinking fast, Tordy took Krakowski off his belt, made her sit down, and then proceeded to fall 15 feet into the bowl below. The show stopped. Battered but not broken, Tordy got back up, spent a few minutes icing his knee, and then went back out to finish the show! Things seemed like they were getting back to normal in regards to the injury. When three days later, Tordy came out for a curtain call, and as soon as he bowed, he blew his knee out. He had to take two weeks off for surgery and to rebuild it. But a week after he had been cleared, he went back to the show. The wear and tear was extreme on the cast of Starlight. And by the end of a show, the cast would be exhausted, sore, and their feet would be destroyed. When it came time for the Tony Awards, hopes were high that Starlight would walk away with numerous ones. The show had been nominated for seven Tonys, but in the end was only able to walk away with one for John Napier's costume design in a ceremony that was dominated by the creative team's other baby, Les Mis. Trevor Nunn, John Napier, and lighting designer David Hersey literally lost to themselves! Two years would pass, and by 1989, Broadway was in love with Lloyd Webber's productions of Phantom of the Opera and Cats. But Starlight seemed to be the forgotten stepchild. The word of mouth wasn't spreading at a sustainable rate, in part because it didn't live up to Phantom or Cats, and also because in a country with places like Disneyland and Cedar Point, young audience members actually want to experience the adrenaline rush, as opposed to just watch it. The show had exhausted its $9 million in advanced ticket sales, and soon, attendance started to drop so rapidly that tickets were sold at discounted prices. And so, one day after New Year's, a company meeting was called where it was announced that Starlight would be closing after 761 performances and 22 previews, failing to recoup its investment by 20%. It's important to note that while Starlight flopped critically and later commercially, a flop by Andrew Lloyd Webber standards would be something that a lot of Broadway shows wish they could achieve. The formula of the mega musical is one of the safest bets to gaining public interest and through the roof advanced ticket sales. It's sustaining that buzz and commercial income that's the tricky thing. So why did Starlight never achieve the same success as other Lloyd Webber hits that came out around the same time? Was it because Cameron McIntosh wasn't there to market? That could be part of it. But in large, the reason is because a mega musical can't rely solely on spectacle. The story still needs to have heart. Starlight's biggest disadvantage is that the team made it too easy to digest. 
and in turn, they forgot the core element that people really need to make them inspired to want to watch it more than once, and to tell their friends. There needs to be a story that evokes a response out of audience members because they can relate to it. Audiences reacted positively to Evil Dead because they could understand the characters they'd come to love over three films. With Beetlejuice, the crowd could relate to the characters feeling misunderstood and their hunt for love and acceptance. In the Lloyd Webber mythos, Cats had a relatable character in Grizabella, and Phantom of the Opera had, well, the Phantom. For Starlight, the compelling character is supposed to be Rusty. But since audiences never got the opportunity to understand what drives him, it became harder to relate to him. While the groundwork for compelling characters was laid out, the focus among the creative team seemed to have shifted from actually building upon those motivations to instead choosing to bank in on the spectacle. That's not to say that it needed to go full Stanislavski in the approach, because that's never what Starlight intended to be. Playwright David Mamet describes theater as the communal hunt for survival. It's not enough just to have flashy special effects. You need to have at least one character that is actively trying to achieve something believable, and in turn inspires the audience to go along on the experience and to root for them. As a result, Starlight was the show that got away from Andrew Lloyd Webber. It was no longer a story about overcoming adversity that had been apparent in the Thomas the Tank Engine stories, and instead became a show that was overshadowed by effects. And yet, despite closing on Broadway over 30 years ago, Starlight Express continues to run strong, just not on Broadway. The London version ran until 2002, it picked up a residency in Las Vegas, and still to this day, it is one of the hottest tickets in Germany, where they've built a whole theater specifically to house the show. And though a lot has changed from the Broadway production, one element remains the same. Reva Rice, after all of these years, still gets to escape every night as she straps on her skates as Mama. Surprisingly, Lloyd Webber never let Starlight go either, and continues to revamp it, with the newest iteration being presented in 2018. Though it isn't perfect, Starlight still manages to live on in the imaginations of theater lovers through artwork, books, and regional productions. Much like Evil Dead, Starlight's fate wasn't sealed after Broadway. If anything, it continued to get better with each revision and would go on to injure countless children taking part in their high school productions. Starlight on Broadway showed that while mega musicals have blockbuster economic advantages, there is such a thing as too much. They still need to be able to find the balance between the commercial and the artistic to be sustainable. Okay. Much like trains, Diesel and electric engines are more efficient and sleeker in design, but nobody can do it like a steam train.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.